up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. And this is not going to be boring at all. We have the host, all right, the professional podcaster himself of Power Athlete Radio, John. I, is it well-born? I do not pronounce English very well. Um, Portuguese yeah. is born and raised. Yeah, it, it's well-born. It looks just like it sounds. Okay, yeah, with me, it's, you know, it's, I played offensive line too, right? Ton of hits to the head, so the ability to uh, pronounce things is not easy. But for anybody that doesn't know who you are, go ahead and introduce yourself. Um, yeah, uh, name's John Wellborn. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas, but I'm really from California, like everybody else here from Texas. Um, grew up in Southern California, the youngest of three boys. Played football growing up, played, uh, got into martial arts when I was six. I uh, got into boxing when I thought kicking was stupid, and then obviously that uh, moved into playing football, and it turned out I was a pretty decent football player and ended up getting a bunch of scholarship offers. Went to go play football at UC Berkeley, ended up graduating four years, working on my master's in my fifth. At that time, I got drafted to go play for the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, came in and started as a rookie, and then was a starter for the next decade in the NFL. Uh, played for the Eagles for five years, Kansas City Chiefs for four, and then my 10th year for the New England Patriots, where I ended up getting hurt. and. At that point, I retired, and once I retired, I was just kind of chilling on the couch. Uh, the game plan had always been to go to law school, really? which is what I had applied to do um, when I graduated from college, and I was doing my master's work. There was a scholarship for a four-year letterman at Berkeley to go to the Berkeley Law School. So I had kind of been kind of eyeing that and took LSATs and was getting ready to go, and then got drafted to go play in the NFL, and I figured I'd play for a year or two, and you know, go back and go to law school, which is kind of like my family business. My, my dad's a lawyer. My dad since passed away, but he was an attorney for like practicing attorney for 55 years. My brother's an attorney. My other brother went to law school, but never practiced. And that was kind of my deal. And, uh, and then uh, was, I was sitting on the couch, actually, uh, filling out law school applications and trying to find another LSAT to take because it only lasts five years. Uh, Greg Glassman uh, from CrossFit fame called me on the phone and asked me if I would help them develop their technology on how to train athletes. At which point I had never coached anybody. I had never really thought much about programming or any of this other stuff. Um, you know, I'd always been an athlete and I just had amazing coaches around me and I just showed up and did what they told me. I was analytical enough to ask questions and to kind of understand what we were doing. And I got a pretty good memory, especially if you say things over and over again, which as you know, strength coaches and football coaches tend to repeat themselves. So then I become like an autistic parrot. So, um, you know, having pretty much trained as a professional athlete since I was 14 years old, uh, it was very easy to kind of port that over a little bit. And so when CrossFit hit me up, I said, sure, let me try. And uh, 30 days later, we, want, we launched a website called CrossFit Football, which was a terrible name for the program. Uh, and I even told them that was a bad name. I was like, this sucks, dude. Like, this should be something else. And uh, Glassman's like, no, 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 no. You play football, people will get it. So um, we launched. My first day, we had like 17,000 hits. I got like hundreds of emails. Uh, people were curious about the program because it was the first time in history that CrossFit had actually like sanctioned somebody to design their own version of CrossFit. Huh. So at the time there was CrossFit main page and then there was all these SME providers like gymnastics and running and kettlebells and uh, all these other kind of like pieces of CrossFit where they kind of found specialty matter experts to come teach elements of CrossFit. Huh. Cro CrossFit football was its own training program that was designed for field sport athletes, you know, short, heavy, hard, fast, big, strong dudes that was based off of CrossFit principles. So in essence, CrossFit actually licensed a program 
that was different than their methodology. It wasn't based on increased work capacity, broad time modal domains. It was pretty much heavy, hard, and fast. And all I did was um, I just put legitimate strength templates with short conditioning workouts, a.k.a. supersets. <laughs> like, I just translated, like, strength conditioning into, like, CrossFit terms. So then uh, we got a ton of traffic, um, and we kind of virally destroyed CrossFit. Because at that point, there had been just one workout, and then we showed up, or I showed up, and I was like, no, 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 you got to lift weights. And then you got to do some conditioning. It's called strength and conditioning. And every gym you walk into since that inception in 2009 now has multiple workouts in a day. The CrossFit oh. Games have multiples in a day. So when you went into a CrossFit, you might just squat five by five that day. Really? Or you might just run 400 meters, or you just might do kettlebell swings, or you might do a wad in this. Now people come in, they do you know, technique work, they do strength work and then they do their conditioning they do their wad so that didn't necessarily exist pre-crossfit football and uh i didn't necessarily think about it until glassman got drunk and fell down face first in his uh soup as he was screaming at me that i virally destroyed crossfit so i think i just made it better so yeah that was uh that was kind of my forte and like my entrance into the world of strength conditioning and from that time on we launched um, you know, the program and we're getting a ton of traffic. And then about 30 days later, they asked me to teach a seminar, which I had no idea what I would to do. I'd never been to a strength seminar. So, uh, we put out feelers and like, dude, all these people wanted us to come. And so I reached out to uh, the guy that trained me when I was in the NFL, Rafael Ruiz and like Kelly Starrett and Andy Stomp and some of the, some of the people I was training with at the time. And I was like, uh, I got to design a seminar. What do we do? So, well, we're going to teach them how to lift weights. We're going to teach them how to run, how to sprint, change direction, and pretty much like made like a ready-made two-day strength conditioning seminar that really was just like a dis diagnostic for their training and taught them some programming and a little bit of nutrition and um, put them through some workouts and just basically brought all like the sprint prep, you know, A, a skips, B skips, all like the, you know, dynamic warm-up stuff, taught them how to sprint using bands, you know, banded resistance sprints, taught them how to lift weights, taught them about compensatory acceleration and med balls and transverse plane and rotation and all the stuff that wasn't in CrossFit. And uh, I taught hundreds of those. I mean, I traveled from like the Arctic Circle in Bodo, Norway, all the way down to New Zealand, all over the world for almost nine years teaching uh, hundreds of people or hundreds of seminars and literally tens of thousands of people how to lift weights. So in a sense... Um, Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button. It helps us out and it helps you be notified when we have new content get released. So again, please hit that like and subscribe button if you enjoy this content. And with that, let's get back to the show. I would show up on a Friday, uh, Friday evening on a plane, teach all day Saturday, Sunday, get on a plane and fly home. And I had 40 to 50 new athletes every weekend for my first year. I taught 36 seminars um, all over the world. So I had an opportunity to like any idea I had about, you know, strength or conditioning or performance or this or whatever, I just basically dropped on the website. People did it. They gave me the results. And then I traveled and met all the people that did the program. That's so, unbelievable. Yeah, it was like the world's biggest sea monkey experiment in like ant farm. And, uh, you know, it really, I, I always have subscribed to the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demands. Yeah. And so what I did is I set up the end game. And then started designing programs to get us down the road and then got to go meet all the people and then put them through a two-day strength diagnostic. And it was amazing to see the people that did our training were dramatically better than the people that did not do our training because not everybody that did our training came to the seminar. People just randomly signed up and I'd be like, great, what do you do? Oh, I do this. Great. And we just took notes. And um, it really, 
allowed me to kind of create the power athlete system that you see today. I created it in real time, uh, literally like cut its teeth on the road, working with athletes, free programming. I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't think that anybody will ever be able to replicate it. And the people that have done something similar, like Kelly Starrett, Mike Bergner, Mark Ripto, the guys that had those original kind of CrossFit days that got to teach hundreds of seminars, really had an amazing opportunity to work with so many athletes in real time so quickly that like the program just kind of clears away the rubble and you can kind of understand the uh, core aspects. There's really no theoretical. You're like, this works, this doesn't. This is where it fits. This is where it doesn't. This is what we've seen. This is how we've gotten people strong. This works, this doesn't. So a lot of what you see on the internet now with all this like online programming and this, it's all fucking, <laughs> well, it's all conjecture. It is. That's why it's, I'm laughing. Yeah, no, it, it's conjecture. You know, it's a dude in his basement, you know, with, with, a, with a cool fucking handle, strength by science, science with strength, explosive plyos with strength and science and, you know, all these fucking names. And like, you know, it's, it's like, okay, like I was watching dude like dunk a basketball and I'm like, okay, I'm not impressed by you dunking a basketball. Now, if you showed me like 50 kids dunking basketballs. So, I don't know, man, it's, uh, it's turned into a lot of wild, wild west and a lot of bullshit, and I think um, a lot of people that are out there pushing stuff out have never had the practical numbers to really ferret it out, and all they're doing is just kind of adapting and copying other people's stuff, you know. And that's something that you and, was his name John, that you had on episode 721? Who was the guest on your most recent one? Um, John. Um... Dude, I've done seven. I, I like him so bad at these. Seven twenty one was uh, was that um, uh, talking Joe? about the business? Oh, Joe, the uh, business yeah. of strength and conditioning. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, Joe Rogio. Yeah, Joe. And um, you know, when you had him on, you know, talking about there is so much trash out there of co- yeah. like you said, people that have never done it. But for the coaches, you know, like myself that have either worked in college for a numerous amount of times, and if there are listeners, because we have coaches that are like, Hey, how do I, you know, take this knowledge that I have of cutting my teeth, working with athletes? Like what is some more, you know, practical experience that you would explain to them? Because like you said, you just did it in real time. Now, looking back, what would you tell them? Uh, I don't know how to, I, I don't know how to replicate my experience for anybody. And I've had people ask me, I was like just the right person at the right time and had the wherewithal to just, you know, I, I like, um, I equate a lot of my success in life. Uh, did you ever see the movie? Yes, man. With, um, Jim Carrey, where he just yeah. like makes a conscious decision to say yes instead of yes. No. Yeah. That's pretty much, uh, I think like the recipe for a lot of my success. When people have pitched me ideas, I've been like, that sounds good. Let's try it. Let's see. Yes. <laughs> And whereas everybody else is looking, and I and my friend Andy Stumpf uh, recently told me that he says no to everything, and it's only the things that keep coming back to him that he eventually gets worn down. I say I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Like, you invite me to come on your podcast, happy to come on the podcast. And, you know, if it works, it works. And I feel like if I had just said no, and didn't do that, then none of this would have existed, and I would have probably gone off and been an attorney and been working with my brother in Orange County instead of. You know, doing what we do here at Power Athlete, which is pretty, pretty fun. So, um, but I, I, I do think that the only way that you answer the questions that you have about strength conditioning and performance and all these other pieces, the only way you do it is actually in real time. You have to train athletes. I can sit at home and dream and conjecture and, you know, watch Cal Dietz talk about triphasic and, you know, look for fucking oscillation drills in here and argue about, you know, the centric load remodeling tissue. But until you see this stuff in real time or you have athletes to actually test things on, 
I think it's just all theoretics and like, you know, you can, you can have a great Instagram handle name and you can come up with like the best shit you want. But at the end of the day, it's always going to come down to who have you trained, who have you worked with and like, have you seen the problems with this? And uh, it's something that, you know, I, I continue to do. I mean, even though we have, you know, thousands of people that follow online training programs, I still continue to train athletes in person. Um, I don't do it nearly like as much, but like if there's like high level professional athletes or people that need my help, I'm more than happy to work with those guys because it just allows me to sharpen my blade and answer more questions. <clears throat> For those that are, you know, going through it, what is your overall 10,000 foot view of training program philosophy? Like when you get a new athlete, football player coming in, hey, off season, what are the first things that you're taking through a brand new athlete that you think are the most important um, KPIs for a football player, whether it be... Uh, a specific position or how do you go out breaking it down again 10,000 foot view um I just need somebody to move well um I don't get romance with movements I, I'm really focused on movement I need them to be able to step squat lunge move x y and z axis and basically seamless and effortlessly combine primal movement patterns through space to accomplish a known and novel task what I do at power athletes we foster and develop athleticism so I don't necessarily need to know a ton about your sport I just need you to be a more athletic version of yourself I need you to be able to generate force. I need you to be able to jump and move and run and be able to change direction and make it look seamless and effortless. So where does that start? Basically starts in your trunk. I need you to be able to learn to arrange this because if I can't can use this to connect this and this, it's a wasted deal. So we start where everybody does. Um, can you arrange your trunk? Can you learn task-specific tension? And from there we build upon it. And at that point, there's really only seven things that your body can do. You know, in terms of an X, Y, and Z axis on the lower body, you can move in those different axes of rotation. So you can hinge, you can step, which is a Y, and then you can Z, like step up. It's really the combination of those three things with the lower body and the ability to seamlessly and effortlessly combine X, Y, and Z, which is what we know as athleticism. The upper body, vertical push, vertical pull, horizontal push, horizontal pull are the, are the four upper body. So there's really only seven movements that we can do, but yet we do them in three different planes of motion. So uh, sagittal, frontal. And transverse so really those endless amount of opportunities to do this the training has to be representative and they have to be able to move through full ranges of motion you know while maintaining posture position and stability so if you can move through those while maintaining because uh, I had a strange epiphany in the NFL I, I got hurt my rookie year I came in and started got hurt and ruptured my patellar tendon so they stitched my knee up and yeah. uh, I couldn't really bend my knee for like three months so I just watched a ton of film, and I, all of a sudden at like, you know, hour 1,000 or something, I had this really interesting epiphany that the difference between wins and losses on the offensive and the defensive line was the guy that could maintain his technique longer won 100 out of 100 times, 99 out of 100 times. Taking a quick break from the show to talk to you guys about our sponsor, Team Builder. If you have any online training platform needs, Team Builder is the go-to place. Team Builder has the ability to integrate with velocity-based training tools. They have the ability to program and have notes and videos for all of your athletes and your clients. This is your number one stop shop. Been using it since 2019 when I was working at Towson. So I've used it, love it. Make sure you check it out. Go ahead, click the link down in the description. And with that, let's get back to the show. Right, so think about that. The ball snapped. I set back into position, and I have a technique. The defensive lineman's job is to get me out of position and to break my technique so then he can effectively beat me to the quarterback. As an offensive lineman, as I move through space, if I'm able to maintain posture, position, and technique, 
through different factors like change of direction, movement, load, strength, all these other th deal. As I set back in my technique, regardless, a guy crashes into me, I punch him, nothing changes in my technique. I don't step in the bucket. I don't do this. The longer I can maintain perfect technique under all these different um, circumstances, the greater a chance I have to win 100 out of 100 times. So when I looked at it, I thought, well, shit, I'm just going to maintain my technique longer than the other guy. So how do I do that? Well, I got to be really strong. Right? I got to be able to be moved really well. I have to be a master of my technique and it has to be automatic so that I can basically have my body move through space and I don't have to think about it other than the fact. So now you get into that like conscious, unconscious competence where I'm so competent unconsciously. All I have to focus on is basically forcing that guy's technique out of position. Because if I, he knows exactly what he needs to do. If he's coming into me and he gives me a shimmy club and I hit him, and it knocks him onto his heels and he's into a bad position, well, he's already lost. And I maintained my technique longer than him. So it's a race to maintain technique the longest, right, through space, planning, change of direction, whatever it is, all these key factors. And I saw that and I was like, boom, done. All right, so when I go in the weight room, when I put weight on my back and my hands, wherever I'm going to lift weights, I know I need to move from point A to point B and then back to point A Right, let's say I'm squatting, I'll just use that example. Right, I load a bar, I'm x-axis hinging, squatting down, coming up. My ability to maintain technique and, and movement from point A to point B and back under load with weight increasing, the longer I can maintain that with perfection, the greater chance that I have for success. So I took that same approach in lifting weights, all the drills, everything I did in my training and then I just ported it over when I went out on the field. I'm like, I know what I'm supposed to do with technique. Great. I'm just going to be strong enough, violent enough, and efficient enough to maintain what I need to do on the field in the face of somebody who's forcing me outside that technique. <clears throat> the combat sport background had to 100% help you with that, no? And yeah, is that yeah, the basis uh, for your athletes too? Yeah, I mean, uh, boxing. Um, like cutting a dude off in the ring and like all like the boxing, you know, basically fucking playing two-thirds inside out, first meaningful touch. You know, being able to measure distance, mirroring a guy's feet, all that. I learned all that in the boxing room. <clears throat> and then how do you go ahead and translate, like taking that background to a, you know, brand new novice athlete, how are you able to then translate and, and get them to understand that and express that in that way uh, as you're training them? Well, they have to learn what good movement is first, right? And then we have to learn to move well under load. And then there's a basic linear progression of this stuff, you know. I mean, people, you know, uh, like I've always believed, too, that, you know, uh, um, you know, young athlete, basic linear progression, the Myo's Bowl approach is really good for beginning athletes. Right. You get to a point, though, where it stops and doesn't work, and then you got to get into more jiggy training. You know, underspending compensatory acceleration as mechanical advantage increases, so does speed. Um, when I was probably 16 years old, when I was 14, I started training with this old power lifter, and uh, a guy named George Zangus. And he was good friends with uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield. And he kept talking about this thing called compensatory acceleration. And finally, I was like, what the fuck is this? I didn't say fuck. Um, <laughs> but he said, he goes, his mechanical advantage increases. Imagine you're benching, right? And the bar's coming up. And his mechanical advantage increases. You have to continue to accelerate the bar. Yep. Right? So what happens is, is you activate white muscle fibers and speed and all these other things. But at the end of the day, what I want you to do is I want you to be so violent with the weights. I want you to lift weights with such violence that you're going to break the weights and that people will come over and tell you to, to, to slow down. And um, he, his joke was don't lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful. 
be violent and try to break those motherfuckers. So when you watch me lift weights, I try to bend the bar as hard as I can, and I basically try to fucking break the bar, break the weights. And I've always lifted extremely violently, and uh, that translated when all of a sudden I went out on the field and I went to punch my hands. I wasn't just trying to place my hands on guys. I was trying to put my hands four to six inches through them. I was trying to punch through guys. So I, a lot of times when you watch offensive linemen go out there, they just place their hands and they kind of punch, and then they start doing this. No, I was imagining that my hands were like you know, steel balls, and I was trying to punch my hands, not to their chest, but through their chest and have them come out the other side. So I would hit dudes so violently that people didn't want to necessarily play against me. How did you handle that type of aggression and technique but not overcommitting and reaching because, like you said, fighting in space. What if that defender was playing you? How did you balance those two, the yin and the yang? Uh, I have a very unique skill set uh, where I can somehow punch, uncoil my hips, hit, and then rebend. So when, uh, like, we were watching film, I remember I was at the Eagles, and I remember my offensive line coach telling the young guys, like, uh, you're going to watch John do shit that if you guys do it, you're going to lose and get cut. And he's like, he, I, I can play nose to nose with the guy. I can punch. I can uncoil my hips and I can still bend and still play through space. It's just probably just a certain level of athleticism being able to move in space. So I just have a unique skill set. <clears throat> Having the lawyer background, how did that help you with the private side of it, but then also being an actual coach and making sure that you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's? Um, I, I think the interesting thing about coaching, and this is why I don't prefer to coach, um, like nor like, and, and I, when I I'd say normal people, I'll just use that word. Like, like when I say, uh, civilians, because well, we work with a lot of like tier one military guys, like we have oh. a con- we do a bunch of stuff with Naval Special Warfare Development Group. So like working with like what I call tier one guys, guys that are high level, like this is what they do for a living. This is how they put food on the table, professional athletes in the same row. I like working with those guys because there's never a moment where you want it more than they do. Uh, when I owned a gym, a commercial gym, and we had people come in, uh, I found that um, I, a lot of times I would get more excited by their progress than they would. And I found that I wanted the success and I wanted them to do better more than they wanted it. And when that realization happened uh, and the people just didn't care as much as I did, I knew it was time to go and not have that job anymore. So I kind of pulled back and we worked a lot on power athlete and I still train professional athletes and tier one guys and guys that are like really hard chargers, door kickers, you know, guys that go in harm's way, like that type of stuff where like it means something. Like, that is uh, the type of people I want to work with. Just like the guy who's trying to get in shape for his wedding and then he hits yes. his wedding and never works out again. Yeah. Or somebody that's just looking to tone. Um, even though I'm sure we have a ton of those people. Like, I'm, I'm really not your guy. Like, in person. And, and I get hit up a lot of, uh, by a lot of people to come and train with me. Um, there's at least every time I go to JITS, I got some guy. It's like, hey, man, I'd really like to come work out with you. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Do you really? Yeah. It's, <laughs> I don't I mean, think it's, you would. Yeah, no, it's, it, I mean, uh, not to say they wouldn't do well. It's just not what really wakes me up in the morning. No, yeah, I mean, you're speaking to my soul with that because on that same last episode when you were talking about, um, you know, not wanting to start a gym just because, like, people not putting things away, not break, like, just getting over that, like, but balancing the fact that, you know, how do you have a team of people around you too? Like, how difficult was it for you to hire people and, and build your team out? Uh, I've never been very good 
at that. Uh, I think the reason being is um, I was on Mark Ripto's podcast the last week, and I, uh, I I had an interesting segment and some realization, doing a little soul searching about myself, and that um, I'm a process driven person, right? As an NFL player, you have to be process driven, yeah. right? Um, I'm going to line up because if not, you're going to yeah, get yeah, cut. Yeah, yeah. or. You know, or like, you know, you're winning and losing with wins and losses and individual plays, right? So like I'm going in, I'm going to play 70 plays. The guy next to me who I'm working with, he might get hurt and leave and I got to bring in another person. So I have to have a process in place to be able to move with like moving pieces, right? Like we have to be able, we could be up, we could be down, uh, whatever, you know, regardless of what happens, you know, like I saw, who was it? Miami hung 70 on... Uh, oh yeah, Denver yesterday. On Denver, yeah. right? Those guys are going to have... They're, they probably were acting like they won the fucking Super Bowl. They are going to absolutely tank next week, right? Because they were too high, right? They did like, like they don't have the process in place to go in and beat somebody by 70. If the New England Patriots beat somebody by 70 points, they would have a process in place to go beat somebody the next week. The, the Miami Dolphins, I'll be very surprised if they go in and win, mark my words, just because they don't have the process, man. Like they just haven't been there. And so um, with... With everything, that like process-driven deal, uh, it means you're going to have bumps. It means that guys are, you know, people are going to be inconsistent, like no bigs, no ups, downs. So I think as an employer, I, I'm in the process and I probably suffer fools and I allow people more leeway than I, I will or I should opposed from somebody who's more outcome where it's like, fuck you, you can't do the job, you got to go. Whereas I have this weird suspicion and i do this is probably a uh, a fucking ego shortcoming of mine <laughs> i firmly believe that I'm, i can be the water to break the rock like if somebody's a rock i can be the water all you got to do is just heat it up cool and give me an opportunity and i'll break that rock and uh you get to the point where it's like shit man it's been seven years and you're fucking your rock is fucking not worth breaking get the fuck out so I, uh, as long as I have somebody around me, like a Rogio, who's real good, like, uh, that's why I liked about the NFL, right? Like there was a GM, there was a player personnel guy who was evaluating people, not, not out of, uh, emotion, ego or anything, but can they do the job today? And if they can't, and that's their responsibility to give me the best parts to play with, right? So if the guy playing next to me isn't good, then bring in somebody else. But my process doesn't change because it doesn't matter who they put next to me. But I'm trusting that they can remove those pieces. I just haven't done a good job of, like, getting into the front office. And I remember when I retired, I had some offers to, like, go and do some front office stuff. And I was like, oh. man, I, I just don't know, like, in turn, like if, if I would have the, uh, like, the cutthroat nature to, because I'm, I'm constantly trying to remove the rubble, trying to find the best. And, like, okay, this guy's got this. He can do this. He can do this. Opposed from the guy's like, oh, fuck that guy. He can't play. Get him out of here. I just don't know if I'd be good at that. <clears throat> is that why it works? You know, it, it sounds like you're saying, hey, essentially kind of find, you know, your niche and kind of still continue to operate within that. Um, as you've continued to grow, is that why you, you're continuing to just stay on like the coaching side of it and not continue to aspire that way? Or do you want to eventually evolve and, and be able to do that? Uh, we do. I mean, we do coaches education and that piece. Uh, you know, we do a lot of programs which are more like A to B type of stuff where we you know actually coaching athletes through programs. Uh, we do an annual collective. We had about 51 of our coaches show up uh, a couple weeks ago for, you know, to, to kind of go through one of the new programs that I just put out, which was, um, I, I got tasked to work with, uh, if you guys are in the BJJ world, a guy named Victor Hugo from Six yeah. Blades, you know, he's like the top ultra in the world. So Victor, uh, his coach, Shanji Hibero was pretty famous too in the BJJ world. 
reached out to me through a mutual friend and said, hey, I got a young athlete, if you could help him. So Victor came over, uh, brought his two training partners, and he was having some serious back injuries, L4, L5 issues, and um, had never really lifted weights, had never done any traditional strength conditioning, and, you know, was one of the top ultras in the world. And uh, I was really fascinated by uh, jiu-jitsu as a sport because it's like a 360-degree kind of gyroscope. Yep. And when I think about athleticism and, more importantly, like training, I really picture in, like, standing. Like, imagine, like, a linebacker or a baseball player or a football player. Like, I imagine somebody in this kind of, like, standing vertical, horizontal, or, like, vertical, you know, position. And then I'm watching jujitsu, and it's like, dude, these guys are, like, here, here, here. It's prime. It's supine. It's here. It's, like, 360 degrees. And I was like, man, I wonder if what I know of athleticism extends to something that's like a gyroscope. So I, I thought, man, this is a really interesting model um, and an interesting sport. And uh, what was fascinating is Victor is such a gifted uh, jiu-jitsu player, like just so skilled, but yet lacked the basics of strength and conditioning. Like I'm, I'm talking about like high school basics just yeah. because it's, it's not part of their culture. So when he came in that first day, I was like, these are professional athletes. And um, I, was, uh, I, I was like, you know what? This is fascinating to me. So I, I took those guys and, um, you know, and what they've accomplished in the, in the year is pretty much short of, like, am- amazing. Uh, you know, we fixed Victor's back, and he's able to do a lot of things that he couldn't do before. And, you know, it's put him in a position where, you know, he went in a couple weeks ago, and he had a big uh, super fight against Marigali. And Marigali ended up getting him on uh, this little kind of sweep. And Victor should have stood up. And instead, he rolled out and he stood on him. So he, he lost by two points. So, I mean, but it, like, and what's kind of hard for me with jiu-jitsu is a dude rolling for 10 minutes who scores a two-point advantage. And he stands up and starts beating his chest that he's the best in the world. Like, it seems like fucking horseshit to me. Like, if you want to be the best, you got to submit the best. Like, I'm not winning shit on points. And I would never, I'd be embarrassed to say anything less. But, um, you know, I mean, but then here's the deal. We're process-driven. So this is just one piece in his process, and there'll be plenty more. But, like, this is just a bump. We make corrections, and we keep moving on. It's not like that's the end of it. So uh, that piece has been really good. Uh, But, yeah, working with those athletes and helping them develop. But I brought in – I designed a custom program for them, or actually the custom program kind of, like, evolved for those guys, and that's called Dragon Slayer. So I brought in 50 of our coaches for a weekend, uh, showed them the training, took them through the training, and then we did a, uh, a Sunday JIT seminar with Victor and Shanji, and they, they basically took about 30 of the coaches through, you know, kind of what, you know, those guys, like what makes Six Blades and Shanji, you know, and Victor the best in the world. Yeah, I saw the, uh, the Dragon Slayer. Uh, I thought that was a branch of the gear and the apparel because I saw the um, – Oh, rash no, guard yeah like those yeah those are i mean those were really nice like Thank you me. know and in the whole slaying your dragon and it kind of it brought me to um jocko's book about you know mikey and the dragons and like everybody's got a dragon to slay and it's probably bigger in your head than is is that what kind of the genesis of it um i'm getting no, off topic but no it's uh um you know my mom used to say you know uh like you know people only remember those people that slay big dragons and uh, uh, I have uh, fucking samurais and dragons fighting and slaying on the bat- on tattoos on my body that I got 20 years ago. But uh, where it really came from, too, it re-sparked is uh, during COVID, my wife sent me this quote that said, never apologize for raising dragon slayers in a time that they're real dragons. Ooh. And uh, some, you know, like, uh, I loved, like, 
as much as I fucking hated lockdown and COVID, I really enjoyed it because there was like so much like weirdness that came out of it. Like you really yeah. got to see like who the complete psychopaths were in the world. You know, the people that were like calling the police because people weren't wearing masks outside <laughs> right. or the people that were at home just like, you know, posting pictures of, uh, you know, Mel Gibson and um, the Patriot running up over the hill. Like, you know, just these complete like whack jobs. Right. But like it was a pretty good quote in that, uh, you know, like, like you have to raise your kids in such a way. Like I make no apologies for, uh, for raising my kids, like, you know, to be tough guys. I have daughters in this, but like I teach them like the life, like this world is not kind and gentle and the parents that get their kids into trouble is the ones that try to like erase the ugliness and like, you know, create this utopian, like, Oh, the world's a wonderful place. It's fucking not right. The world's full of bad people and there's evil and there's, you know, fucked up shit all around the corner. And if you don't do your job as a parent to prepare, prepare your children for the evils of the world, or at least let them know they're out there, then you failed them. And, uh, you know, uh, like I said, my dad passed away a couple of years ago and, uh, he was going through, uh, he was fighting cancer. He got diagnosed with cancer right after Christmas. And then, uh, you know, he was like stage four, it was too far gone. Oh. And they put him into some shitty trial with chemo, which I, I regret, but he said he wanted to try it. And so we took him to, a appointment and it was really awful and uh we dropped him off we took him back to this like little hospital thing that he was staying at this outpatient deal uh, that had 24-hour care and my mom's like i don't want to go home like let's go see a movie so we went down the street this is in costa mesa and, and newport beach and um there was like we went into like triangle square and like the only place the only movie that was showing was a uh, black panther so we just mm -hmm. paid and walked in sat down and we'd sat down for like one minute and it was the scene where he's laying there and they like dig him and he like goes to the spirit world and he like pops up and he sees a panther who turns into his dad. And his dad says to him, the job of the father is to prepare the child for when the father is not there. Yeah. Amen. And like literally I like sat there and had this like ghostly feeling. So we leave there, we go back and I see my dad and I was like, dad, you know, or like, you know, like he knew the end was near and we were just kind of having some bucket list talks and like, you know, trying to like talk about the good times. And he, uh, he like told me, he's like, you know, as I'm laying here, um, you know, I know that like, like my, my fight on this thing's coming to an end, but he's like, I have like a, a, a sense of peace and stillness. Like I'm okay with it because I know that your brothers and you are like, like my older brother, you know, went to law school, but he figured out he could make more money in insurance. Like fucking is like a you know, major partner in a huge construction insurance firm. He fucking prints money. My other brother is like one of like the top like criminal defense attorneys in Orange County. Like I got to play in the NFL. I do this. I mean, you know, we're all married. We got kids. Like, every, like my dad's like, you know, you guys have all done really well. You'll take care of your mother. Like laying here knowing how well and how like how well you guys have done and like well adjusted. And he's like, you know, like in a sense, he almost echoed those same words. And he's like, you know, I lay here not worrying about like who's going to take care of you. Like when I'm not here, I know that I'll be taken care of. There's like so it was a, kind of an interesting piece. And he ended up passing shortly thereafter. Um, but, you know, as a parent, the feeling of like, have I done enough to prepare my children? Have I, you know, have I done enough when my athletes come in? Have I done enough for them to when they stand up on the biggest stage in the world? And because uh, I am, and this is so corny, I'm such a fan of humanity in such a weird way. I want to see the best in the world stand on the biggest stage, have their biggest moment, and either win or lose, either hold their hand up. But I want to see them compete on the biggest stage. And the thing I loved about the NFL is I got to every Sunday stand on the biggest stage of the world and one-on-one -on -one fist fight the best dudes in the world for three hours and I got to know exactly how big, good or bad I was. 
And I try to prepare my athletes for that opportunity because I want them to stand up there and, you know, know that they have done everything possible to be successful. If they haven't, then we'll figure it the fuck out. Um, yeah, no, first of all, with the father thing, like, you know, obviously you've, it's happened and you've moved past it, but I mean, that's, that's gotta be tough and good for you with that. Um, my condolences to you, but the, uh, the hard thing about it is, um, you know, uh, like there isn't a single day that goes by. I don't miss my dad, but like, like that's the deal, right? We're only here for a short time. Yep. So the impact that we have, like. I only have so much opportunity to impact my kids and those around me. Cause once I die, like unless I'm fucking Marcus Aurelius or Seneca and write meditations and all these fucking epic, like, you know, stoic quotes that people love to quote very fucking esoteric on the internet and social media with, you know, like, and have, you know, and then force people to go back and read these things. It's uh, like, you know, for the most, for the, you know, for the most part, we'll all die twice. You know, the day we die and when the last person we know forgets uh, or passes away and her name is no longer. So to be able to do something that echoes in eternity, you know, I mean, you know, like I said, like, uh, you know, uh, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, like I was a rhetoric major in college. So I was a classics major. And so, you know, the cynics, the, the stoics and all that, I mean, you know, Cicero were all really like a big focus for the first three years of my college career. And so it's funny now with like social media, people love to like, you know, Google this shit, find a quote and then put it on social media as like some like deep esoteric thing. And you're just like, you're full of shit. You didn't even read that book. You just found a cool quote and you're posting it with your fucking bikini picture. Um, But like that stuff is very impactful for me because I was young and impressionable. And, um, you know, I read, you know, Mushiashi's Book of Five Rings and like, you know, the uh like all of that really went back to help you know formulating who i am and more importantly realizing that if i want to make the biggest splash possible because if you think about like the impact we have on those around us ripples in time i got to create throw a big rock out there and the way that i do it is obviously we do with athletes we do it with coaches and uh, hopefully provide you know good information on podcasts that influences people and uh, people could listen to it and know that it's, for the most part, pretty honest and pretty straightforward. And I'm not trying to um, fucking sell you anything on a, you know, um, on a uh, affiliate code. So. <clears throat> okay, so first question that I have. Oh, I'm going to save the second one. The first question that I have then is, based off of all of that, it seems like when somebody becomes one of your athletes, they get all of you then. We're in the same exact vein because I'm assuming you want to see them succeed. Like. Yeah you probably want to see them succeed just as much. Like you talked yeah. about that before. Like, I, how do you handle that? I, I don't, I don't have a lot of athletes. Mm. Um, I just, uh, I, I don't have the ability to half-ass anything. So I'm like, you know, kind of in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, you know, if, if like we're like, I'm going on this journey. It's like my kids, same thing. Like my kids, I'm like, you know, I'm not an absentee father. Like this journey that we're on, like we're going to be on this journey for a long time. And, uh, you know, like, this is my job is to guide you. This is the, this is the position I'm in. And I try to give a lot. Um, I realize that I personally only have so much time and the ability to give so much. So I'm very choosy with how I give my time, but I do do things like podcasts and, you know, uh, programming and discord and all the ways that I do to try to like give this information away and be able to provide people stuff. It was, uh, it was funny. I was on a Rob Wolf's podcast recently and, you know, one of the things when I retired from the NFL, I was in Dr. Amen's study and uh, part of the scans they did on the brain, like the left part of my brain was kind of damaged. So it was left frontal lobe, 
basically didn't light up, deals with sympathy and empathy, and they basically said, hey, I had brain damage. So it put me on like a 10, 12-year fact-finding deal of like, how do I fix this? Like, you know, uh, if the part of me that deals with sympathy and empathy, which is ironic because I got them to write me a doctor's note for my wife and my mom that basically said, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm fucking brain damage. I'm an insensitive asshole. But, but like a big part of this was like, okay, well, you know what? Like, I need to fix this. Like, your brain should be malleable. I should be able to fix this. So it took me a number of years. But, um, you know, I went and got rescanned and... You know, all the damage that was done to my brain is, is untraceable, completely gone, no more issues. And I've been really proactive. And so, Rob, you know, was, it was pretty neat. I recently, um, there's a deal called NeuroWave, and uh, there's a machine called Sonal. It's kind of like a helmet with magnets that they use for people with PTSD and, like, depression and stuff. So the guy that um, does all the testing, Dr. Eric Wan, was on the podcast. And I had just, through another random deal, been tested by them like 10 years ago. And then 10 years later, I got tested by them through Nick Hardwick. These guys came and presented South by Southwest. Uh, I'm like listening to it. And I'm like, wait a minute. I've, I've heard this before. You know, to fast forward 10 years later, they scan me and my brain is like completely improved. It's like it de-aged, it got sharper, got this. And so I started going through and as I sent the information to Rob, because I remember when I first got diagnosed, I reached out to Rob. So I, like 10 years, 12 years later reach back out to him like, hey, dude, I fixed this. So he gets me on the podcast, and I went through all of the things that I did. Uh, starting with like a ketogenic diet, and then um, you know, it was micronutrient testing and hyperbarics, and then uh, went a pretty ex- um, uh, aggressive hyperbaric protocol, which was like 40 sessions, five times a week for eight weeks. There was a supplement strategy associated with it that we had basically I'd, I'd pulled from other stuff. I mean, there was so much stuff. Like, um, you know, I noticed the big improvement with exosomes. I mean, there was like meditation, learning, like, uh, like just fucking a decade of stuff. And I, I outlined it on the podcast. And then when I was recently on Rip's podcast, I had mentioned, we got into a little bit of it. And I got all these emails from people that were like, can you send me that protocol? And I'm just like, dude, go listen to the podcast. Or, it's you know what? right there. Or just book a consult. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you, but like I've, I've given a lot away and I'm happy to give more away. But like at the end of the day, like, you know, uh, like like the, the the secrets of the internet are just are, are like at, at your fingers if you're willing to reach out and fucking grasp it. And I think like that's a big issue. If you want to be a better athlete, you want to be a better coach, you want to be a better father. All of those things are out there. You just have to sift through it and figure out what works for you as an individual. Not to say that the way that I did it is the right way for everybody, but here's the protocol that I used, and it took a number of years, and it was a lot of testing and retesting. But I really think that anybody laying at home and being like, oh, my brain is squished, poor me. Like, it's fucking bullshit. And I, I have friends like that. And you know what they do? They sit around and smoke weed all day. Oh, fuck that. And they, they, they somehow think that basically hitting themselves square in the head with a ball peen hammer every day smoking weed is somehow going to fix their brain. It doesn't. Your brain is a muscle. Like, it needs to be exercised. Just basically just basically sedating it with uh, cannabis. And I'm, I'm fine. Believe me, I'm a much bigger fan of cannabis than I am of prescription pills and all that other stuff. But I also am not fooled enough to think that cannabis is somehow going to fix my brain and, and make me not a potted houseplant. Yeah. And so the reason I'm super interested in this because I recently started doing some brain training myself. And you said the left side. And I have apparently left side cerebellum not functioning as well. So I was like, huh, I played right side. Don't wonder if he played right side. Like I maybe. I, well, I played left, but I always played against a three technique. So I was constantly hitting this way. And yep. then when I went to go play right tackle, I was always reaching and putting on the left side of my head. So yep. I think like left guard, right tackle was like the perfect storm for the left side of my head. 
Yeah, same for me. Like, I played right tackle, and like you said, I'm either coming down and helping block a three-tech, or I'm reaching, or I'm getting yeah, a Mike you're, you're linebacker, yeah. right? And <clears throat> same exact process. The guy who's actually, his episode's getting released this week, he's a chiropractor. He's my father-in-law's chiropractor, and he, he and his brother and the whole family, it's like, they're super driven by the neural process and the brain and functioning with the brain and... Um, you know, we're doing these, like he's got me standing on my left leg, brushing my teeth with my left hand, right. To get that going or, um, focusing out of the right corner of the eye, like doing activities with the left arm. And it's just, as I continue to do these things, um, I guess I'm just kind of doubling down on what you said. Like it is super, super, it is malleable. And I'm interested in that because how can you continue to push the envelope of, human performance right rather than just like not even just said smoking smoking weed and getting drunk like how can you make that better the uh the biggest thing is that the pain receptors in the gut are the same that are in the brain and you know you've obviously heard of leaky gut uh people that have leaky gut have leaky brain uh the the lining i mean there's a there's a a nerve or there's a physiological neurological connection between the brain and the gut you heal the gut you heal the brain and so you got to remove a lot of the issues that are basically killing killing the gut and uh that was where i started did a bunch of food allergy tests, figured out what foods I was allergic to, which ones I wasn't. And, uh, you know, I did a pretty aggressive ketogenic diet where I only ate a carb for a year. I came out the other side of that. It was pretty awful. Um, and, uh, um, you know, felt better. Uh, but I, I do a lot of micronutrient testing. So making sure that, like, that's a big piece for me is making sure micronutrients are on point. Um, and I just eat a diet that basically fits within, you know, like if I'm allergic to those foods, I don't eat them. Like, I'm always allergic to gluten, soy, and uh, uh, what is it? It's gluten, soy, and one other one. I can't remember the other one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so for me, gluten-free diet, I don't eat any soy. And for the most part, I just, you know, and I don't, uh, I don't try to self-medicate with alcohol. That's another big one. I think people, that was a big thing we saw out of COVID. Yep. Um, you know, like, oh, it's 9 a.m., let's have a drink. And I'm like, Jesus, these people basically fucking self-medicated themselves through COVID. Uh, so... And then the other one, too, is, um, you know, being present. Um, Like, it's so easy to just, like, waste time scrolling, but, like, reading, like, doing different things that are, like, thought-provoking. Like, uh, um, I find that, so this shit, this goes back, fuck, how am I, 47? This goes back over 30 years ago. Uh, I was 17 years old. I took a training, or I took a... um, um, I took a recruiting trip to UC Berkeley, and uh, I told them I was interested in being a lawyer, and they allowed me to go into the law school, and I had a uh, one-on-one meeting with this guy named Adrian Cragen, who was the dean of the law school in like the 60s, right? Real old dude. Uh, I think he was in his 80s at the time. Uh, came to find out that he was friends with the attorney that like apprenticed my dad, right? Totally random. They were both Hollywood attorneys. So this guy was a tax attorney. The other guy um, that my dad's uh, apprentice was a criminal at defense, and... Um, he made a really interesting statement that stuck with me for over 30 years, which is if you want to learn to think, you have to learn to read and write first. He said, only fools speak before they learn to read and write. And he goes, you have to learn to think. So he's like, read and write. And then you le- that's how you learn to think. That's the process. So I think about, I, I mean, I, I like to read and I like to write. And reading and writing allows me to formulate my thinking so that I can come and speak intelligently. This does not exist without reading and writing. And what I feel, a lot of what I hear on the internet is just, 
people being influenced by other people's talking and them not really thinking through the process. That's like when you hear people and it just sounds insane. Like I hear shit that people say on the internet or I'll hear like people be interviewed or podcasts and this. And I'm just like, I mean, they might be rich, right? Which I don't necessarily know if like the value of like in today's world, like the richer you are, the more you have it figured out. I don't think that's the case. No. I think you're just good at, you know, basically making money. Yep. Um, but I hear these people and they sound fucking insane. And uh, I, I hear this all the time and I just think like, shit, man, like, like these people have a high level of psychosis and they're insane. But more importantly, like they don't read, they don't write, and they don't think. And uh, it's very vapid to me. So uh, what I ask all of my athletes and all the people around me is, is like, what are you reading? Like, like, can we have intelligent discussions on this? And if I can't have intelligent discussions with people because they're, they're not reading, they're not writing, they're not putting their thoughts on paper, they're not working through things, I find that it just dwindles. And, um, you know, at that point, you, you have to surround yourself with people that are going to uh, force you and push you on, you know, like if, if, if these are the core ideals I have within Power Athlete, what I've done is I've effectively, you know, brought in hundreds of coaches, worked with tens of thousands of athletes, pushed this methodology out for years. And what I'm always searching for is pushback, how people are using it, this and this. And I think you get to the end where you're like, you know, this thing's been battle tested enough to know where, you know, I think we figured it out pretty well. Um, you know, I, um, uh, you know, on the podcast, it's pretty interesting in that, you know, you listen, you hear the information and if there's people that want to push back or they want to give me, you know, contrarian ideas, I'm up for it. I'm up to argue on anything. Uh, you know, have I thought through everything? No, but I like to take Jordan Peterson's approach, which I love on Jordan Peterson, because if Jordan Peterson gets posed with a question that he doesn't necessarily like, hasn't thought enough about, he's like, I haven't thought enough about this. I don't want to answer it poorly, which I think is a, is an incredible thing because people don't do that anymore. No. Right, you ask a question, I don't know, they, what do they do? They start fucking talking, and then you're like, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. So I like Jordan Peterson's approach. If you were to ask me a question, I don't know, fuck, I don't know, something about, um, uh, I don't know, like inverse relationship of debt to national GDP, I'd be like, I don't know. I haven't looked at that since I was in college. Like, I'm not going to be like, well, uh, you know, production's down in the United States. But that's what people do, you know, because if you admit you don't know something, then you're not an expert. Right? Oh, God. You know, and, and then the other part, too, is you get like the uh, the weird experts on like manliness. That's like my personal. Oh, thing. that's like my hustle porn deal. Oh, like, please. Like yeah. The um, uh, who is it? The uh, Andrew Tate. Andrew where, Tate. Yeah. Where like, you know, you're doing a sunglasses, shirtless, you know, sunglasses, <laughs> smoking cigars and, you know, talking about what a man is. It's, uh, it's fucking painful, dude. It is. It's painful. Like, and, and, you know, and like the mark of, and you know what, like 16 year old boys eat it up because they think oh. a Bugatti and a cigar and this, and it's just, it's so bad. We're so in trouble. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. A hundred percent agreed. And with all of that out there. Okay. And you, uh, you, the, you talked about the health and the genetic testing and the things within the podcast. How did you filter through all those things for people that are, that want to get things in line, but like, <clears throat> because there is so much of it out there and they don't know who to trust. Like, how did you stumble upon what you did to be able to speak so convictionally about it? Um, I think you have to create a circle of people that you trust and then you bounce things off. So I, I don't really think I'm uh, all that smart. I just have really intelligent friends uh -huh. that I've done enough for when I ask their opinion on things. Um, you know, they'll be like, I don't know. 
but uh, let's research it. Or like, what do you think about this and this? And um, I think as long as you have intelligent people around you that can give you a little bit of like, do you remember uh, the movie Hunt for Red October? I've heard of it. I never watched it. So it's an incredible movie with Sean Connery. But in there, they... um, they were like trying to communicate with the Russian sub, but they had no way of communicating. So they did this thing called pinging, where they like sent out like a sonic thing, and it like it bounces off of like the metal sub. So how long the ping goes is how they measure distance. So that's called active pinging. And so he's like one ping. So he shoots one ping, and then it kind of rings the deal, and it's like okay, they, that was yes. One ping was yes. Two was no, right? But I think like for the most part, like you got to be like actively pinging. And I, Rob Wolf has always says that he's like, oh, I pinged so and so. And I just think about the hunt for Red October that you reach out, you kind of like push information out and like you're kind of measuring distance to see whether or not it makes sense. And I think as long as you have a good Rolodex of people that'll shoot you straight and then you have to be analytical enough to like hear what people are talking about, see if that makes sense, kind of do your research and then decide, you know what, am I willing to invest in trying this? And then what's my marker for improvement? I don't think that people in life or really just anything sit down and say, you know, what do I want out of this? It's like an investment, right? Okay, I'm going to invest in this. What's, what's my perceived outcome? What would be my version of success? What would be my version of like, okay, this was a win, this was a loss? And uh, things I did, I didn't necessarily notice an effect. Um, but you know what? Um, some other things that I did that I didn't think would have major implications ended up having huge implications. So um, I think having uh some like measurable and repeatable markers for success i think is always you know kpis you talked about it you know what's the kpis that i would, that are going to show me that whether or not it, what i did was successful or not with the micronutrient stuff how like you know getting into the nitty-gritty for any of our listeners out there that are continuing to try to you know learn about it for themselves or their athletes like what were some of the big, again, 10,000-foot view rocks that you noticed, like, hey, okay, me, and then are you doing this with your athletes that you're recommending? Like, how do you go mm-hmm. about that? Uh, there's um, uh, Tom Inquidon in Arizona. Is a guy named, uh, he has a company called Cosenta, and they do this uh, really extensive panel. I forget the company that does it. Uh, but, yeah, they do all the micronutrient testing. And what's fascinating on the micronutrient stuff is, like, you know, you go through, and let's say you're low on something, and then I supplement, and I'm still low. Why am I low? You know, a lot of that stuff comes from low-level inflammation and some binding receptor sites. And a lot of times, nutrients aren't absorbing not because you, they're not present in the system, just because your body isn't healthy enough to absorb them. Mm-hmm. So being able to, you know, understand that your body needs zinc, magnesium, iron, you know, selenium to basically produce testosterone, people are like, oh, I'm low in T. So what do they do? They supplement them with testosterone when they're understanding that they may just might, might not have the building blocks they need. Uh, same thing with the brain. Um, I really believe that a lot of the brain stuff we're running into it's coming back from micronutrient deficiencies uh the the food that we eat and there's people that are going to argue this but i historically right like um somebody sent me something lane norton posts where he said this wasn't true and it is um and i know this because of doc inklinon but the food we eat today is about one tenth as nutrient dense as it was 100 years ago jesus so you know like if i'm eating like you know a, a steak for example and I'm supposed to be, you know, reaping all these nutrients out of it, um, and it's not as nutrient-dense as it was 10 years ago, then I'm going to have to supplement. Or if I'm eating vegetables, or if I'm eating fruit, or I'm eating all these different things, because I'm trying to eat this kind of diet that's rich in micronutrients, there's a good chance that I'm still going to be micronutrient deficient because the food is not as nutrient-dense as it was 100 years ago. 
So for, for our evolution, we evolved in a very interesting way with probably very nutrient-dense food that just doesn't exist today. You think so that that's why people are starting to try yeah. to hunt more and grow their own stuff? Like, yeah, there's a trend. Yeah, no, um, well, I think that regenerative kind of like, um, you know, like harvesting, I, I think that's just fucking cool. Like, I oh, mean, 100%. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I like fucking awesome. Like, I, I just saw... You know, Andy Stump and his wife like went on this bitch in elk hunt, and they basically, you know, took an elk and they bring it back, and they fucking amazing. Elk steaks are great. Like I fucking, I am so like if you want to have a garden and grow your own fruits and vegetables and do that, I am, I love it. Do it, but just know that the nutrient, you know, the nutrient density of the food that you buy at the grocery store is not what it was 100 years ago. So are people doing it? No, I just think they're doing it because it's fucking cool and it's the right thing to do. It makes for good Instagram content and it's a way better fucking story than I just went and bought steaks at Whole Foods. But just know that you, the, the, the nutrient density of the food we eat is not what it was 100 years ago. So if you want to basically live with how, you know, I mean, you know, the evolution thing's really fascinating. You have to understand a little bit of evolutionary biology to really, like, kind of put this stuff. And anybody that says that's bullshit is fucking a quack. Uh, Art, Art Devaney's evolutionary biology that I read, shit, over 15 years ago, 16 years ago, maybe 17 years ago, is still one of the most impactful things I've ever read, right? Like, lift weights, move through space, you know, sunlight. I mean, it's really, like, if you, if you guys Google it, Art Devaney's evolutionary fitness... Um, you know, uh, like that shit's still the blueprint for this stuff. Um, you know, eat, eat a good diet, sleep, you know, wake up when the sun rises, go to, you know, start tuning it down when the sun goes down, you know, eat a high protein diet, lift some weights, run, like to be able to do all these things, get outside, you know, I mean, like, you know, this is how we've evolved for the last, you know, X amount of years, however long, you know, it's pretty fascinating too. Cause if you look at like evolution, there's so many conflicting so much conflicting information on human evolution because there was like homos I guess we're what homo sapiens yeah. like there's all these different versions of us but it's pretty interesting that like yeah. like if you look at it like there was Neanderthals and this and then they all just disappeared and there's us so like I'm always really fascinated on that like was it was it like the ultimate game of survivor or like you know it's pretty wild I uh I, I um I really got into Zachariah Sechin's books. I don't know if you've ever read any of those, but uh, he was the guy that went and translated all the uh, ancient Sumerian texts and all their crazy-ass stories. And mm -hmm. he wrote them in these books. And I, I just got done with the, with the first book called The Twelfth Planet. And it's pretty wild. But, like, I, like not that I'm, you know, looking for aliens to come down from space. But I think <laughs> there's some really fascinating, fascinating things within, within the world and with us that we just don't know answers to. But... Um, I think in terms of how to make people bigger and stronger and faster and make better athletes, I think we're pretty good. Uh, there's a lot of, if you kind of like take a 10,000 foot macro view of like everything everybody's saying, it's all about the same, right? Like if you want to build, yeah. you know, if you want to build muscle, you got to train some, somewhere to failure. You know, if you want to carry a lot of muscle and be jacked, you got to eat a high protein diet. You know, if, uh, if you want to, you know, like not age your brain, like it's in dog years, you're going to have to sleep, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like sunlight's important. Uh, what else? Um, you know, lifting heavy weights is important to recruit motor units. Uh, you want to have mitochondrial density, have a big aerobic base, you know, for longevity. You know, I mean, all these things are key factors. And uh, regardless of how people want to argue them, I mean, they're pretty undistinguishable. I mean, um, pretty hard to argue in that way. Has there been a major aha moment in the last couple of years of training? Like, hey, I didn't do enough of this. 
back in the day, I'm doing more of it now, or um, something yeah. that was added. Yeah, the aerobic base stuff. I, uh, I, I didn't give any credence to it. I just thought I was going to sprint and run as fast as I can, and uh, sprinting was better, which it is. And then it wasn't until probably about 10 years ago um, we were doing, uh, we, did, we, we always do little stupid challenges, like little bets. And uh, uh, one of them was I had to lose 10% of my body weight. We did a bod pod, and the guys were doing, like, gain 10%. We did all this kind of stuff. And uh, I was stuck, and I couldn't, like, I was, like, cutting calories. It wasn't working. So I put, like, a bunch of aerobic work in. I just was doing, like, 45 minutes, seven days a week of, like, riding the bike or walking or stair, stair mill, just straight up zone one, zone two stuff. And then all of a sudden, I, like, PR'd every lift. I was, like, in caloric deficit. I was down 15, almost 20 pounds, 30 pounds. So I was, like, 265 and I was like, all of a sudden I pulled like, we did deadlift and we did a max rep set. And I think I pulled like 585 for eight, which I had never pulled 585 for eight, especially in like caloric deficit under eating. Wow. And uh, like PR at all these lifts. And I was like the leanest. I was like under 10% body fat. I think at the time I measured, I was like 7.8 and I was like 268 pounds, 267 pounds. PR at every lift. And I was like, shit. <laughs> fucked up that and uh that, and so at that point i really started leaning and i went back and looked at all this like kind of research for mitochondrial density and that and um that was a uh, a real big piece for me so i just yeah that was kind of one i fucked up i wish i had added that in when i was playing the nfl but i think having a big aerobic base is helpful i think you got to lift heavy weights um you know if you're injured i think using some blood flow restriction training using ems devices to recruit motor units is important and i, I think that you know you have to have some element of competition do something that forces you to be athletic um you know i started working with the bjj guys i started doing bjj again or not again but i started um i i had always done boxing but i kind of hurt my shoulder so then i had shoulder surgery i stopped boxing and i kind of got stuck and i didn't necessarily know where i was going to go and i was supposed to box with some of the guys but they're like 45 minutes away which makes it fucking time prohibitive then these bjj bjj guys approach me I start working with them. I start going training with like some of the best dudes in the world. And um, that was really, it was good for me just to be around one or be around younger dudes and, you know, have these guys have such a good skill set. It was incredible for me to be a beginner again, empty my cup and just be okay with sucking and, um, you know, be humble enough to be like, shit, man, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, and I'm fine with that. So I really enjoy uh, like the process of not being good at something and like going from like, I don't know what I'm doing to like, and moving on that that journey is like really appealing for me and i've done it with everything like i i learned to weld and fabricate and build stuff and do dirt work and just like all the shit i do around here on my ranch um i just learned all that and I, it's just because i'm okay with not sucking at things and i'm okay with <clears> like you... fail you know oh go ahead Zach. yeah no, no i'm okay with failing and asking for help and getting better and i think that's part of life did you go about it with the same mindset that you had in the, the last episode that i listened to where you would just you know, you talked about guys at JITS, they would show up, train hard for 14 days, be gone, versus just showing up, you know, two days a week because you're like, hey, I do two days a week. If I get the third, the fourth, did you start off and just go and binge it and then go to the two to three? Or like, no. how, what's your learning process? No, I, um, I, I, I always like to build steam. So everybody does this and then they do this. What I do is I kind of do this slow ramp. I was like, let me get to two days. And when I can handle two days, I'll add a third day and a fourth day. And then I'll kind of adding this. So I've been at it a year. I've been pretty consistent. And I'm frustrated that I'm not better. So I'll add a third day. And so now I've been going on Fridays. And uh, I like some of the open mat stuff. So I've been trying to go to more like rolling rounds. Like I think the technique stuff is good. But um, it's kind of like practice. Like the walkthroughs are fine. But at some point, you got to go live bullets. Yeah. 
And uh, I really enjoy that piece. Um, you know, but also what kind of screws me a little bit is I invest, you know, six hours, six, seven hours a week with my guys, which is six or seven hours a week of my spare time that I would be doing other things with. But I, I've realized that, like, it's important. Uh, I've invested that time in those individuals for them to do well. And their job is to, like, you know, go out and fucking be the best in the world. Do you think that you started doing the jiu-jitsu per- before because that's who you were coaching more? Or do you yeah. think it would have been a little bit different? Okay. No, I would have never have done it. I think it's the dumbest thing ever, laying on your back and having wrestling with a bunch of other middle-aged men in pajamas. I think it's the dumbest <laughs> thing ever. I would have never have done it. I would have never have done it if uh, if these guys hadn't approached me. Uh, I just I like I just thought it was disingenuous that um, these guys are coming to train with me and learning what I do, but I know nothing of what they do. So it was just about humbling myself. If I didn't have that piece, I would not have humbled myself. <clears throat> that speaks to my soul because I did kickboxing for two and a half years um, with a friend of mine who ran a gym, and very similar in terms of if you're going to train for if you're going to program for them, you want to know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, within that vein, for your athletes, because you've had the broad spectrum of them. What ones would you recommend coaches and athletes to do and why? Uh, what do you mean? If they're going to be a competitor in it or a discipline to learn for the benefit of all the different things of being athletic, like what of the, the combat sports would you recommend for people to do for their own benefit? I think everybody should learn to box and use their hands. Um, I think uh, jiu-jitsu is great too. I mean, I, I love the wrestling. I love the jiu-jitsu. I, uh, I think it's really fascinating from like an athletic problem solving. So one of the um, one of the interesting pieces, um, and I think this is maybe something that's lost today, and I hope it's not, is athletic problem solving. Like you put like a fence is put in front of you. How do you scale the fence? How do you climb a tree? How do you like solve these problems in space in real time in an athletic way? And I like jujitsu for the fact that another person, open chain, open loop, comes to you, and you have to figure out a set of like skills. To basically have an intended outcome but it's all part of a process so i think for like neurological staying young for like problem solving it's like physical chess and uh i really think like that boxing that's why they call it the sweet science same thing being able to like you know use your body in space being able to move in relationship and i, I think that stuff is so vital and we'd probably be a lot farther along in society if uh, people did more of it so i think that piece is huge uh, the one thing that does bug the fuck out of me about jiu-jitsu um, isn't necessarily the jiu-jitsu. It's the, how obsessed people are with belts and stripes. Ooh. Like, like there's somehow, like, I need, like, I, I never show up to promotion day. And I, like, I literally, like, won't show up. So I just ditch promotions. I don't want stripes. I don't want belts. I, I like, told Shanji, I'm like, you know, the only belt I want is a black one. So if you want to give me other belts, I'll wear them, but I don't care if you ever give me another belt. I don't care for a stripe. I'm fine to be a no-stripe white belt and stand in last in line. Like, give other people. Like, like, other people need that shit. I'm not showing up for you to, like, give me something as a way to move me along this, like, pay scale. Like, like that's not any problem. Like, that's, like, it, it, it doesn't do anything for me. Like, it's not like, oh, my God, I'm training till I get a blue belt. I don't give a fuck. I don't care what color your belt is. Right? I don't care if it's a black belt or a green belt. I don't care what it is. I'm just going to try to go out and smash everybody equally. Right? Like I have zero, like, and people go like, oh, that guy's black. I don't give a fuck that guy's a black belt. I don't care if that guy's a brown belt. I don't care if that guy's a white belt. Some of the toughest roles I had, I went up, I was in Montana, and I uh, went to go roll with Rob Wolf and a uh, dude that was a no-stripe white belt. 
He's like, hey, we tapped it up. The dude was on me so fast. And like, I, I could tell within a minute he was a high school or college wrestler. The dude was on me, like literally closing distance. I was all of a sudden had to have this metal thing that was like, make frames, do this. And I ended up fucking getting the dude. But I was like, he's like, oh yeah, no, I was an all-state wrestler in high school. And the guy was like a power, like a, a power line worker, you know, lineman. I mean, dude was super strong. And I was like, dude, that was like, that dude almost fucking killed me. And, um. <laughs> He didn't have any stripes on his belt. Uh, my buddy Matt is, uh, was a D1 wrestler for Cornell. He, he's like, I wrestled, you know, Division I, uh, you know, Power 5 school. And he's like, you know, we never wore belts. So, I don't know. Like I, I, like, I understand the need for it. But, like, people are super obsessed. We're like, oh, my God, I got my first stripe. Or I got this. I don't know. I think you worry too much about fucking some external validation of where you stand in line or, what, or perceived placing mm. in this world. You know, so that's not my, I, I don't really care about that piece. <clears throat> As you um, talked about the sleep, how do you, how did you go about your sleep journey to continue to make it more improved? And what would be some advice that you tell coaches to help their athletes? Uh, I think you have to monitor your sleep. Um, I really didn't put a ton of credence in that, but I really think monitoring your sleep, finding some form of sleep tracking is helpful. Um, and the biggest reason this isn't, isn't necessarily to like tell you HRV or quality, but I think it's making sure you're in bed at a set time and getting up at a set time and then being able to measure how you know whether or not your sleep is restful, what you're doing. You know, if it's uh, the room's too hot, if there's too much technology, if you, you know, light, I mean, just start removing all these variables and really look forward as like sleep is like your superpower. This is how you recharge your battery. And if it's not beneficial, and you're not doing well, then you're going to fucking age quick and you're not going to be able to perform at a high level. So really, uh, I'm very selfish and I safeguard my sleep. <clears throat> Has there been any aha moment? Because like, the athletes that you work with, majority of them, professional, college, what's the population? Uh, oh, I, I, I work with professionals in person. Uh, the majority of people we work with are probably anywhere from 18 to 56, 50 you know, year old mostly men, but, you know, people that are either high level, you know, college, high school athletes or dudes that are doing some form of training after life. You know, we got yeah. masters track guys, guys that do jits. We got a ton of military guys. I mean, a lot of guys that do stuff. And then there's a lot of dudes that just bang weights in their gym or in their garage because they want to have a good program. <clears throat> no, the reason that I was asking is just because, again, that variable of, hey, if you're a college athlete, college strength coaches, you know, are a main demographic of trying to continue to, to, to handle that, you know, Hey, you got to You have to truly be not Joe College or Jane College if you want to get those results, right? And it's like, if you can, um, I never put the full onus into how important actually sleeping in a cold bed is. I was like, oh. ah, somebody recommended it. Like, no, it, it's it's there, dude. You, you got to do it. So, yeah, I'm easy to find. Just at John Wellborn, W E L B O U R N, and uh, Power Athlete. If you put me into Google, I'm easy to find. I'm easy to find on social. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for uh, for talking with us. I really like, I mean, like-minded people, so just love learning from you. So thank you very much for the, for the time today. Awesome, dude. Look forward to it. Thank you. See you. See you.